2: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
3: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 14 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, May the 7th. First, I'll be talking to Michael O'Hernissian, CEO of managed accounts platform Premium. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about how we should re-evaluate fiscal and monetary policy. But now, let's talk to Michael O'Hernissian. Michael,
2: tell us about Premium. You guys started as an off-platform service, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we started in 2001. The the technology actually came out of JB Weir, would you believe? There was a software guy, JB Weir, called Arthur Newamides, who then set up his own shop in 2001. And it was a SaaS business, software as a service business. And, and the thing that Premium did on the earliest days was it had uh, data feeds with all the stock brokers in the country. So if you, you know, Leon was out there buying shares through a broker or online through a broker, Those transactions would come to premium and using optical character recognition in those days, this is before APIs, we could see the transactions and from that alone, pretty much, we can construct what your portfolio is. We know what it's worth. We know what its unrealized capital gains are, what its realized gains are, whether you're within the 45-day rule or the 90-day rule and what the franking credits are. All of that, our system would just automatically create all because we get the transaction data and we construct your portfolios. That is what we started with, and that is why we are the best at corporate actions and tax and performance reporting. One of our greatest resources, one of our greatest strategic assets is that we have every corporate action on every listed company in Australia since 1985, because that's when Paul Keating introduced CGT. And it's not so much that we've got a database of all those things. We've actually configured all of those corporate actions on every Australian company into our system such that, If you wanted to find out what it meant when BHP did some complex thing 10 years ago, we can tell you what that is immediately because it's all configured into our system. It's completely automated. And because we service the last two international investment banks who still do wealth here, and that's Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse in particular, we also do that exact same thing for about 5,000 international securities, all those American companies and European companies and so on. And again, with a database of all of their information, all the corporate actions automatically configured in the system. So that is how we started. And it's an unusual birth for a platform because normally a platform starts off as having having custody, a bit like a managed fund manager does. You you gather assets, you bring them into your environment, you hold them, you own them, you trade them, you report on them, and they're all in one place. Premium didn't start that way. Premium did it the hard way. (laughs) We did reporting across the industry. And then later on, we became... A platform as well, Maurice.
1: How many uh, client assets are actually off-platform these days?
2: So it depends on what you count. But if, if I had to think about what I think is the ultimate number, there's probably about 300,000 investor portfolios that we do the reporting on, whether we have custody or not custody. The, the vast majority are non-custody. Three of the, of the four big banks, plus Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse, all use this service, the reporting only service. And, and let me let me describe the, the Australia universe as Universe A and Universe B. Okay. I used to use Comsec, right? Okay?
1: Yes. Um, very, very reliable.
2: Yes, but it's Universe B. Yeah. Because every year when I was on Comsec, I'd have to get all this information, put it give it to my tax account, we'd have to work out what the tax was. In 2007, I moved into Universe A, although I didn't know that that was what I did. I started using eTrade instead. Now eTrade has been a long—it's now called ANZ Share Trading—but call it eTrade. They have been a long-standing client of Premiums, and the and the deal with eTrade, and it's still true today with ANZ Share Trading, is if you're on that system, you automatically get a tax report from Premium. So in 2007, for the first time, I got this report from a business called Premium who I'd never heard of, but I had a tax report. And I, instead of producing all this information and giving it to my, my accountant, I just gave him this tax report. And my accountant looked at it and said, Oh, that's premium. And that was it. That was it. That was the end of my conversation. It, it told him everything he needed to know. And, and so, all of the stockbrokers and people that use premium, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, E Trade or ANZ Share Trading, JB Weir, Canaccord, Shoreham Partners, they are in what I call Universe A. Where by default, one of the things you get every year is a tax report or your investing site that is 100% right, even in the most complicated of circumstances. Even if the ATO issues a class ruling after the event, even if it's a staple security, it doesn't matter how complicated it is, we are right all the time.
3: Now, there's a substantial amount of investments that are off platform, which would indicate that Australians are speculators. How easy are these portfolios to assess?
2: Yeah, look, and I think that's a big problem. So, so we, we conducted some research with a with a firm independently, and what we found on average, now it, it's a reasonably big survey, but it's not 100% accurate. But we found that from the survey, about 22% of wealth doesn't sit on a platform as people understand a platform, including ours. Okay. So to give you an example, when you put money into a term deposit, that's not a platform. That's sitting with the bank, right? If you buy some stocks on Comsec or ETrade or through a broker, that's not on a platform by definition, right? You'll have a HIN, your money's sitting in a HIN. If you invest directly with a fund manager into his fund, that is off platform. So, But if I just take the stock part, it is part of the Aussie culture for people to speculate in stock markets. So it always has been particularly more so in the older days, particularly mining startups, you know, in Perth, right? And so it is part of our culture that we don't want to go and just put it on a platform. It's a nice, easy solution. You know, Australians are all looking for that next after pay or whatever it might be, you know, the next year. And so that is why, and, and the problem with that, of course, is that any particular individual like myself, I might have money sitting in several turn deposits across multiple banks. I might have money with one or two or three different stockbrokers. I may have invested in a fund somewhere. I may have some money sitting on a platform, (laughs) right? And so the problem with it not being on platform is the opposite of what's good about platforms. With platforms, everything is in the one place, like a managed fund, right? It's one nomenclature in terms of the way things are thought of. It's one database structure. It's one trading system. It's one reporting system. It's all uh, held together, Whereas if I had to work out, I mean, even for myself in non-custody, if I want to work out what I'm worth today, I have to go and check my term deposit, see what it's worth, go and see what the stocks are I bought on (laughs) E-Trade. Maybe I've got some money sitting in a managed fund and find out what the value of that fund is. If you think about the work that you would do, how much is in my super account and much is in my non-super account. And and so that is why when we talk about it being off a platform, that is really painful. Now, if you're a financial advisor and you have a hundred clients, all of them have, let's say, 80% of the money sitting on a platform, premium or mlc or bt or macquarie wrap it doesn't really matter the advisor knows that that part's easy to report on right because it's on a platform but all these clients have some money sitting you know in a 10 deposit maybe with some stock brokers they've got some old stocks that they bought through multiple brokers how does the advisor capture that information so they can reflect back to the investor? what their actual wealth position is. That's an awful amount of work. I mean, even if you had to do it for yourself, if your wife turned around to you today and said, Leon, what are we worth? Well, you just think about all the work you would have to do. And and remember, you've got direct access to it. Imagine being a financial advisor. You've got to go to the investor, try and find out how to get information about those assets that they've got that don't sit on a platform. It's a lot of work. And that is why, and and I think it is always part of our culture. We're always going to have people that are going to want to invest, obviously, in turn deposits and manage funds, but most in particular stocks, not just listed stocks, by the way, but unlisted companies as well. In fact, I've myself bought into an unlisted company. Some former colleagues of mine are doing really well. And so that's even more complicated trying to work out what that's worth. Right? It's not even listed. There's no price.
1: So uh, what what opportunities have set off a premium? So
2: we've always had the reporting. What, what dawned upon us... And remember, we've been doing this since 2001. What dawned upon us back in 2017 was that a lot of our... So when we give them the software, they then have to operate the software, right? So they can see all the holdings, they can see the transactions, they can see how we're handling the corporate actions, we're valuing things, we're providing reporting. But for that to be correct and accurate, they've got to do some administration work that only they could do, which is to reconcile, to make sure that, yes, in fact, because because our system will 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 project how many shares in BHP you've got based on, let's say, 10 years of trading in BHP, right? But to make sure it's right, you have to compare that to what the registry says you actually have. They are the source of truth. So the admin work they have to do on top of what we already provide is just to check that it's right, to just check it with the source of truth, be it the registry, be it the bank, so you can see that, you know, if you had a dividend, is that actually... You know, like, if, In other words, if you, if you have BHP and you're expecting it, you get a dividend, our system will predict what the dividend payment's going to be, right? But to be sure of it, the source of truth is to have a look at the client's bank account and make sure that that's the money that actually came in. That's the admin work that our clients have to do themselves to make our software to become 100% accurate. and Therefore, you know, investment grade, 100% right from a tax perspective. Back in 2017, we then started to realise that maybe we could do this for some of our clients. And it's just taken off. And in three and a half years, We've gone from one client with a few portfolios to today where we have a dozen or 15 firms who are now using this service, over 6,000 portfolios where we are doing all this administration, checking against the source of truth, the registry or the bank account. Um, And it covers over $16 billion worth of assets. And so for those firms, we are taking away all of that pain of reconciliation and making sure it's right We open the mail, we do all that work for them and we're good at it and we can do it at scale because we can do it across a number of firms. And we think that this is a game changer. We're still early in this process, but we think that the future potential is massive because every advice business out there has this pain and it's inefficient for them. It's not a good use of their time and money and it distracts them from what they need to be working on. And if we can take that pain away, because we are the best at operating our own software because we know it best. And we can do it at scale
1: and uh and of course so because you started out as a as an off-platform business 20 years ago yeah. it's in your dna
2: in our dna absolutely and we can do this better than anybody and we believe that you know we're not trying to be the solution for everybody but in terms of advice businesses if you think about it and and, and a lot of our history actually has been simply this a lot of particularly the small firms there'll be some financial advisors There'll be, therefore, an admin team and an advice business, as you can imagine. And they might have one person who becomes an expert user of our software and does all of that administration. But if that person leaves, (laughs) or goes on maternity leave, whatever it might be, suddenly they panic. And invariably, these firms, particularly the smaller ones, would either give up, (laughs) or they'd come to and say, can you help us? We've just lost Melanie, who's our expert, and we don't know, no no one else knows how to use it. So it's all about... Focus and expertise, and sustainability, and outsourcing this admin work for off-platform assets is the obvious thing to do. And if you think about productivity in our, in our in the history of humanity, it is all about greater specialization and outsourcing all those things that are not core. And this is the next frontier, particularly in this country where we will always have a lot of wealth off-platform.
3: So that represents an enormous opportunity for other wealth management firms, doesn't it?
2: Massive. It's, you know, um, one of our peers, um, NetWealth actually was in the newspaper talking about how they wanted to go after this market and they they named it as a over $1 trillion market. (laughs) Now, I don't know how big the market is, but um, it's pretty big if you think about it. If you think about just the, the amount of money people spend just with stockbrokers, that gives you a sense of just how big this market is.
1: Well, that's quite exciting for you, isn't it? It's most quite exciting it. for premiums.
2: Yeah, and, you know, and, and, and all those people that are already in what I call universe A, <laughs> yeah. like E-Trade and Shore Partners. Partners, um, you know, they're already, they're already most of the way there. Now, some of those clients of ours have also asked us to go and do the admin as well, but at least they've had the good software, so they've had the opportunity to get it right.
1: Well, Michael, will be watching that with great interest. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you, Leon. Good to talk to you.
1: Thank you.
3: And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Gruen.
1: Nicholas Gruen, how would you assess uh,
3: Joe Biden's stimulus plan?
4: I think in the circumstances, it's a, it's a risk that Joe Biden and, and the Democrats need to take in the United States. It's worth noting, however, that they're being pushed into taking large risks because they have to get this through Congress. So they have to make a guess at, about the way... The economy will evolve over the next two or three years. They're likely only to be able to control Congress and uh, for the next one and three quarter years. And so what I think is significant to point out here is that we're doing this the wrong way. We are. Uh, what's happening is we're being forced into making large guesses about the future and we don't do that with monetary policy. With monetary policy, we have a mechanism for making sure that the policy fits the circumstances all the way through and we adjust it every month. Uh, We probably shouldn't be doing that quite so much with fiscal policy, but that's what I highlighted in my Financial Times column and something I've argued we can deal with. I've argued that for 25 years and uh, happy to outline it for you.
1: Well, how could we make monetary
3: and fiscal policy better?
4: So let's leave monetary policy out of it for a minute and let's look at Joe Biden's situation. I think we should, I think what we need to do is we need to look at what we've done with monetary policy and ask ourselves, how can we adapt that to fiscal policy? What we've done with monetary policy is we have an independent central bank and that has a huge influence. It actually it doesn't fully control interest rates, which let's say that's monetary policy, But it has a huge amount of it basically sets the rates. And in Australia, for instance, it can be overruled by the government, but it never has been. So it's been a very powerful body. And that means that we can track monetary policy through time. Every month, the central bank comes to a view about how monetary policy should be set. If you think about fiscal policy, it's completely different. It's it's negotiated through the parliament. Now, it's, it's critical that parliament is involved in the setting of tax and, the, and spending decisions. Those are political decisions. But I would argue that the relationship uh, between spending and taxing, in other words, the budget deficit or surplus, is a, that in itself is a macroeconomic policy instrument, whereas who you know, actual tax rates, who gets taxed how much, that that's what parliamentarians should be uh, focusing on. So if we can separate those two things out and the way I've suggested that that happen is that there be an act passed by parliament which enables across the board tax rises and falls, then we end up with a fiscal policy instrument, which is a bit like interest rates. And we can then think about how independently we want that managed and then we've brought about a situation where fiscal policy is somewhat is, is a lot more like monetary policy, a lot more independent, and therefore a lot more fit for purpose in managing in helping to manage our economy.
1: Uh, that said, I mean, isn't the isn't the role of Congress or Parliament to actually approve changes to tax and spending?
4: So, so, so I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and, and my response to that is to make this distinction between the sort of basic distributional questions that are addressed by parliamentarians agreeing on a schedule of income tax, what level of GST is, whether they're going to spend more money on housing subsidies or the dole or health. Those are questions for parliament. But if on top of the all that system, which has to be determined in the medium term by political haggling, to be precise, I think we should be separating out this aspect of the budget surplus or deficit, and we should be targeting that, manipulating that or changing that with across-the-board changes. So those across-the-board changes are built on whatever distributional decisions Parliament has already made. So that's, that's the idea, to separate the fiscal policy as a taxing and spending instrument for all, the, for all the purposes that fiscal policy has with a macroeconomic instrument. And uh, I think that that would, I think the arguments are very strong that that, that would put us in a much better position to manage fiscal policy.
1: Uh, that said, I mean, you've been arguing for the last 25 years that there have to be changes in uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy. And you seem to suggest now that it's become even more critical in the last 25 years.
4: Yeah. So I think that the last 25 years have shown us one of the things they've shown us is that we're in a situation where we are now, where we have monetary policy, we have interest rates at zero, they're sitting at zero, they've been sitting at zero in the northern hemisphere countries for years and years, and they've only recently got there here. What that says to me is that we have for decades overused monetary policy to manage the economic cycle. Why have we done that? Because we can't use fiscal policy because it just turns into a political bun fight and everything gets mistimed. In other words, if a government thinks it wants to spend a lot of money, it has to haggle a lot of those things through the parliament. And that can delay things by months or, or if you want, if you need to raise taxes, often years. So. Firstly, the situation we find ourselves in shows how much relying on monetary policy to manage the economy, only how much trouble we've got into. And the second thing I'd say is that right now, the pandemic stimuluses uh, have been substantially funded from money printing. So there are two ways to fund a, a, a deficit. One is for the central bank to print lots of money and uh, and the other is for for government to borrow the money from the public we chose so we've printed a lot of money once governments start being able to effectively print money and i've simplified some of the explanation there somewhat but trust me that's a reasonable description once governments are able to print money Alarm bells should be going off. There's nothing wrong with printing money, but there is something wrong with giving a government the ability to just spend money and have that money printed for it. And in that situation, we need more independence in fiscal policy of the kind that I've argued for.
1: Now, you have uh, suggested something like a consolidated macroeconomic stability board.
4: So... You've got to ask you a question, which is if you set fiscal policy up in the way that I have, uh, that I'm suggesting you have, who should be the independent advisor or manipulator of fiscal policy? And there are two ways to do it. One is having an independent fiscal board, but we already have uh, an independent body that is very important in the running of macroeconomic policy. It's called the central bank. And it, it uh, controls monetary policy or the interest rate. And so you can easily give the sorts of powers that I'm talking about to just direct to the central bank. If you did that, it will, you should think of it not as the cent, just the central bank, but as essentially a, a body that is, is dealing with macroeconomic stability more widely across the range of both fiscal policy and monetary policy. I call that a macroeconomic stability board.
1: And so, this uh, this uh, body—have we had anything like this
4: before? Well, we've had central banks like, uh, but we haven't. Well,
1: we have. have a reserve bank which is independent. We have a Bank of England which is independent. That's
4: right. uh, Sorry, you said we have a reserve bank that's independent, and what what else that's independent?
1: The Bank of England is
4: independent. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, that's a central bank. Yes, that's right.
1: So central banks are, by by legislation, are meant to be independent. Correct. So. how would a macroeconomic stability board work with an independent central bank?
4: It would be the central bank. It would you bank? would expand the you would expand the remit of the central bank to have a role in fiscal policy.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. Okay.
4: okay. Or you know, it depends how you do it. You can file the central bank into the uh, you know, this is like determining whether something is a Purchase or a merger, uh, you can describe it in two different ways, and uh, you can set up a macroeconomic stability board and locate the central bank inside it.
1: That would give the uh, Reserve Bank and all central banks a lot more power.
4: Well, yes, it would give them more power. In which case, don't do uh, have have them separate. Uh, you know, that's that's not something I think. I care about very much or that I think I've got anything very useful to say. What's important is that, the, there are, is that there is a degree of independence in fiscal policy and a degree of independence in monetary policy, whether you integrate those two things or not is an interesting question.
1: And uh, what I'm saying is uh, any decision to set up a macroeconomic stability board would therefore be an intensely political
4: decision. Well, indeed, indeed. Uh, And if you don't, if you think that that's more scary than having two separate ones, just have two separate ones. It's not something I'm going to fight about.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, Nicholas Gurin, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thanks a lot, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well,
3: AOL and Yahoo is being sold again, this time to a private equity firm. Verizon will sell Verizon Media, which consists of a pioneering tech platform, to Apollo Global Management in a US $5 billion, or that $6.5 billion Aussie, deal, giving up its digital media ambitions in the face of competition from Google and Facebook. Verizon said that it will keep a 10% stake in the new company, which will be called Yahoo. Yahoo, at the end of the last century, was a face of the internet, preceding the behemoth tech platforms to follow, such as Google and Facebook. And AOL was a portal, bringing almost everyone who logged on during the internet's earliest days. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept the official cash rate on hold at 0.1%. Australia's housing boom is showing some signs of slowing as the rapid rise of past six months begins to constrain affordability and dampen demand. House prices rose at a slower pace in April, a month after hitting a 32-year high, but strong demand is expected to further drive the boom for at least another year. Nationwide dwelling values rose 1.8% in April, the slowest pace since January after last month's record rise, CoreLogic, Inc. data released on Monday shows. Capital city prices also gained 1.8%, led by Darwin and Sydney data show. Sydney home prices jumped by 2.4% last month. Melbourne prices climbed 1.3%, and in Brisbane, prices advanced 1.7%. By contrast, in March, Sydney home prices rebounded by 3.7%, and in Melbourne and Brisbane, prices climbed 2.4%. And surging investor lending which rose at its fastest pace in almost two decades, has pushed Australia's booming residential market out of regulators' comfort zone and made macroprudential controls more likely, according to economists. New data showing home loan commitments to investor buyers jumped 12.7% from February, the fastest increase since July 2003, to a seasonally adjusted monthly total of $7.8 billion. And Netflix paid around $550,000 in tax in Australia, despite estimates it brought in more than $1 billion in revenue from its subscribers in 2020, who had little else to do during COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns than binge its television and movies. The US-based streaming giant is slowly increasing the amount of income tax it pays locally, coughing up $553,705 for the 2020 calendar year, up from $485,371 in 2019, which is on the increase from $341,793 paid in 2018. However, the company continues to use a corporate structure, allowing a Netherlands-based subsidiary to recognise Australian revenue, estimated to be between $700 million and $1.4 billion. Local subscribers are billed by the Netherlands-based entity and the money is collected by Netflix Australia on behalf of Netflix International, BV, with a local entity charging at a fee to provide those services. According to Australian Securities Investments Commission filings in 2020, Netflix reported an after-tax profit of $878,234 on revenue of $20.54 million. This was up on the $17.3 million in revenue and profit of $854,695 reported in 2019. The revenue was made up by the service fees paid by Netflix Australia's immediate parent company, Netherlands-based Netflix International BV, which paid $14.5 million to the local entity, up from $12.4 million in 2019. Netflix Australia's ultimate parent, US-based Netflix Inc., paid the local entity $5.9 million, up from $4.8 million in 2019. And Boston Consulting Group's original quote for its work reviewing Australia's post operating infrastructure structure was $1.38 million for less than four months of work, a Senate inquiry into former CEO Christine Holgate's departure has heard. Despite the taxpayers putting the bill, the report has never been released into the public domain. Managing Director and Senior Partner Miguel Carrasco will not reveal the profit margin the firm made on the work. And the New South Wales Government will look to develop manufacturing capacity for RNA-based vaccines and medicines, Facilities would be potentially online in the 12, next 12 to 18 months. New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian says this could include manufacturing COVID-19 vaccines, but will also include other vaccines, including RNA technology. She says it's about the medium to long term. And Australia's budget deficit this fiscal year will be $30 billion Australian dollars, narrower than the government's mid-year forecast as a surge to hiring and iron ore prices bolstered revenue, Deloitte Access Economics said. The underlying cash deficit in the 12 months through to June will be $167 billion, Deloitte said in a report released on Monday, compared with Treasury's December estimate of $197.7 billion. The budget shortfall will almost halve again in fiscal 2022 to $87 billion, it said. Australia's economy has recovered rapidly from the pandemic as early containment of COVID-19 boosted confidence in fiscal and monetary stimulus supported firms and households through the crisis. This helped fuel a surge in hiring, with unemployment falling to 5.6% in March from a peak of 7.5%, meaning increased tax revenue and fewer welfare payments. In addition, iron ore, Australia's largest export last week, approached all-time highs. Miners have been struggling to keep up with demand from Chinese steel mills as the world's second-largest economy accelerates. Looking further ahead, Deloitte forecasts underlying cash deficits of $56 billion in fiscal 2023 and $49 billion in fiscal 2024. That suggests that over the four years of fiscal 2024, the budget will be almost $100 billion better off, Deloitte estimated. And the federal budget will set aside money for the construction of a gas-fired power station in New South Wales, amid a growing view within government that it is more likely than not the taxpayer-funded project will go ahead, regardless of what the private sector decides. Because the power station will be built by the government-owned corporation Snowy Hydro Limited, it will be listed as a cash-for-asset transfer and have no impact on the budget bottom line, which is the same way the MBN is treated. Last year, when launching plans for his gasoline recovery, Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave the private sector until April 30, 2021, to file final investment plans for a power station to replace a capacity that could be lost when the AGL-operated Liddell coal-fired power station closed as scheduled in April 2023. If the private sector did not step up, the government would, Mr Morrison said, via a gas-fired plant in Koori generating between 350 megawatts and 650 megawatts. And Energy Australia has finally given the go-ahead for a new gas-fired plant to be built in New South Wales' Illawarra region. The Tallawarra B plant will be at least 300 megawatts and will come online in time for the summer after the closure of AGL Energy's Liddell coal plant in New South Wales, Energy Australia said on Tuesday. It will be able to use gas as well as green hydrogen, enabling it, to be switched to carbon-free fuel when it is available. Talawarra B will be Australia's first net-zero emissions hydrogen and gas-ready power plant with direct carbon emissions from the project offset over its operational life. Energy Australia will offer to buy 200,000 kilograms of green hydrogen per year from 2025. And Australian businesses have been slugged with premium jumps of up to 30% to cover cyber attacks, according to a new report by insurance brokers Marsh. The rise has been fuelled by insurers pulling back from covering such costly information technology attacks and hits from ransomware, in which hackers demand a payment to end the damage. Businesses that have been hit by cyber attacks include Nine Entertainment, publisher of the Australian Financial Review, and logistics outfit Toll. Toll was hit with ransomware attempts, while no demands were made to Nine, even though the cyber hit had hallmarks of ransomware. Marsh noted that businesses renewing their annual insurance in the first quarter of calendar 2021 had a 35% rise in cyber premiums in the United States, double the increase seen in the prior quarter and the largest increase since 2015. In Britain, it was 29%. Australian businesses had paid similar figures in the first quarter and the trend was worsening this quarter. And furniture retailer Nick Scarley said it expected net profit for the 12 months ending June to reach between $78 million and $80 million, compared with underlying net profit of $42.1 million in 2020. Retailers such as Nick Scarly, Harvey Norman, JB Hi-Fi, Temple and Webster, Adairs and Beacon Lighting have benefited from a sales boom as consumers cocoon at home and redirect spending on travel and restaurants to furniture, homewares and appliances. And Westpac has told the market it is aware of a statement of claim where ASIC alleges insider trading related to interest rate hedging activity during the privatisation of Ausgrid, a transaction which Westpac worked on in 2016. The claim also alleges unconscionable conduct and non-compliance with its financial services licence. ASIC has commenced civil proceedings related to this in the federal court. And Westpac has reported a better-than-expected first half of cash profit as the economic recovery in Australia and New Zealand continues. The bank's revenue from ordinary activities rose 1% to $10.7 billion, while statutory net profit rose 189% to $3.44 billion. Cash earnings were up 256% to $3.54 billion, beating estimates for the $3.44 billion cash profit. Excluding notable items, cash earnings rose 60% to $3.82 billion. And ANZ has reported more than doubling in first-half cash profit to $2.98 billion and a better-than-expected dividend buoyed by its retail and commercial banking division and receding COVID-19 risks. And Solomon Liu's premier investments has bowed to pressure to repay $15.6 million in JobKeeper subsidies but faces new scrutiny amid claims it's receiving more than $100 million in wage support despite lifting earnings by 12% in 2020 and almost 90% in the first half of 2021. As well, Premier will not be followed by a number of other notable Asex listed recipients, including Harvey Norman founder Jerry Harvey. In March, Premier Chairman Solomon Liu and Chief Executive Mark McInnes defied calls to pay back net JobKeeper subsidies of $15.6 million received in the January half or the $69 million received last year. Mr Liu and Mr McInnes said the wage subsidies received in the first half would not be used to fund dividends or bonuses and would be quarantined to pay full-time and part-time staff stood down in future snap lockdowns. Premier said on Monday it used JobKeeper subsidies to pay staff down during stamp lockdowns in Queensland and Western Australia in the past few months. However, higher sales had fully offset the cost of supporting staff teams through these lockdowns, and the JobKeeper subsidies were not required. However, Premier's backflip has not brought to an end a scrutiny over the retailers' use of JobKeeper subsidies. Andrew Lee, the Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury, said Premier may have received as much as $110 million over the first phase of the scheme, based on 6,500 Australian employees receiving $750 a week between March and September, and has demanded Premier repay the full amount. The wage subsidies, combined with the $52 million in rent relief and strong margin growth, helped boost Premier's retail earnings by 88.5% to $237.8 million in the January half. This followed a 12% increase in the underlying earnings in fiscal 2020. On Monday, Dr Lee wrote to the Australian Securities Investments Commission asking if it would force Premier to disclose the total JobKeeper support it received rather than just a net amount. And Indian-Australian business leaders have warned of a serious risks of trade and diplomatic relations from draconian COVID-19 travel bans as Scott Morrison faces a growing backlash over threats of hefty fines and jail time for returning citizens. On Monday, the Prime Minister said the likelihood of anyone being charged under biosecurity bans on travel from India were pretty much zero, but he defended the two-week measure as necessary to protect Australians from the raging pandemic. Australia-India Business Council Chairman Jim Varghese said the threat of fines of up to $66,000 and five years jail for returning citizens were likely to hurt the Australian Indian community and bilateral business and trade. And taxpayers face being saddled with a near $500 million payout if a review recommends the Morrison government should tear up the 99-year lease between the Northern Territory and a private Chinese-owned company for the port of Darwin. The port's owner, Lambridge, said though it would participate with the review if required, the $506 million deal had already been heavily scrutinised. While at the time the Defence Department did not raise any objections, the deal done in 2015 has attracted criticism on national security grounds for handing control of a strategic asset to Chinese interests. During a visit to Darwin last week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison indicated the government could unravel the deal if Defence or National Security agencies changed their mind and felt it had security implications. And Virgin Australia sank to a $3.1 billion loss last financial year and remained saddled with $1.2 billion debt it carried into administration according to filings with the corporate regulator, demonstrating for the first time the full scale of the airline's strike before it was rescued out of administration. The airline called in administrators from Deloitte in April 2020, and after a competitive bidding process, was sold to US private equity firm Bain Capital when creditors approved a deed of company arrangement in September. The financial support for the 12 months of June 2020, which was filed to the Australian Securities Investments Commission a fortnight ago, but only published this week, shows nose-diving revenue and depleted cash holdings. Revenue fell 20% to $44 billion during the period due to the pandemic, which forced airlines globally to ground their fleets and mothball networks as travel demand and activity faltered. Virgin also only had $740 million of cash to service over $5 billion of debt that was due within the next year or so. The airline called in administrators from Deloitte in April 2020 and after a competitive bidding process was sold to US private equity firm Bain Capital when creditors approved a deed of company arrangement in September. And Domino's Pizza enterprises is taking advantage of the demise of rival food outlets to snap up sites to help meet its ambitious growth targets for new stores. Chief Executive Don Mage said Australia's largest pizza chain, which is aiming to open up a record 260 stores this year, was in talks to buy or take over the locations of bakeries and sushi bars that had gone bust during the pandemic. It's very fortunate some companies haven't had the privilege to trade, Mr Mage told the Macquarie Australia Conference on Tuesday. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Dr Sam Huppert, the CEO of ProMedicus, the listed technology provider which helps large medical facilities store and transport large images. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivery about what seems to be a recovery in the Chinese economy and the implications for Australia. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week.
0: Hold up.